Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Wonderful, beautiful morning. For those of us who have been dealing with allergy seasonal allergy symptoms all week, amen that God brings the rain. It's so much easier to breathe today for some of us. We're so grateful that all of you are here. Some of you are visiting. Some of you uh, we haven't seen in a while, but all of you are welcome, and we're very glad that we can be together on this beautiful day. One of the things that we've seen over the last few months, actually, is we've been talking about God's judgment. We've seen that there is an encouragement in knowing that God will judge the living and the dead. And I know that the initial reaction of most Christians when you say, we're going to rejoice rejoice when God brings judgment, is, oh, Pastor Tim, you know, Jesus would... Would, would not encourage us to rejoice when God is bringing judgment on those that reject him. And I understand the sentiment. And in this life, my heart tells me I don't want to see anyone judged. In fact, the scripture tells us, Peter tells us, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we know God's heart. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we also know that judgment will come. And while I rejoice in God's mercy and grace above all things, I also rejoice in his judgment. And by that, I mean I'm not a bloodthirsty Christian. I'm not sitting around counting the the, the days until God destroys all of his enemies. But at the same time, a day will come where he's going to set things right. And I have to be honest, every day I find myself looking at what's going on in our world, and I say, Lord, today be fine. It'd be fine if you came and set things right on this earth, because judgment is God setting things right. We're going to see in this morning's study in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, in verses 1 through 10, That before the Lord's return, there is a celebration in heaven. I like to call it a hallelujah in heaven. And if you've ever thought, is it appropriate to, to worship God and to celebrate God's coming judgment in the context of what I've already shared, this study this morning should correct any misgivings or misnomers about that thought, that you can rejoice in God's judgment on this earth. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we ask that in all things you'd be glorified. Give us the right heart. If you've held back your judgment, it's because of your mercy and grace. And so we may at this time desire that you come and rule and reign on earth and set things right and rule as you do in heaven. May, may things that, that, that happen on earth be according to your will. We, we pray that But at the same time, Lord, maybe while we look for your judgment and long for your judgment, may you instill in our hearts the desire to see those that haven't received your love and your grace in salvation. Lord, we long to see them respond to the gospel message. And so with each day, each passing day, that your judgment does not come upon this earth, may that be a day of grace and mercy for those that haven't responded yet. But Lord, when that day comes, we know it will be the right time. We know it will be the right day. And we long for that day so that we can celebrate in eternity and for 
all eternity on this earth and in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by looking at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 19. This is a heavenly scene. We've just had so much judgment come upon the earth, described for us in so many ways, in an entire chapter, chapter 18 last week, describing the destruction of the world system that defies God. And that was a good study because we learned that God does have a plan to bring his judgment against that evil, wicked, abusive system that's called Babylon the Great. But now, that having been accomplished, the final judgment is about to come. And what that is, is the Lord returning to destroy his enemies on the earth and to set up his rule and his reign. Now, we just recently, a few weeks ago, I guess, saw a coronation of a king in the UK. Some of you watched it. Some of you care. Some of you don't care. But at the end of the day, the coronation of a king is a moment when a nation or a kingdom or an empire looks to the next phase of whatever it is they're hoping to accomplish with a new region, with a new king or queen. And in this case, when we look at chapter 19, this really is the the coronation in some ways, the beginning of the coronation of Christ as king. So we look at verses 1 through 3, and this is what John writes after this. That is, after all this judgment that John had witnessed in a vision of the future, After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. That's that world system we talked so much about the last three weeks. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So the system was destroyed. The city that the system was located in, or headquartered in, was destroyed. The system no longer exists at this point in the future. So what's left? The political system is somewhat intact. The armies are still out there. The the leaders are still alive. But the system to control the world has been destroyed. And Christ is about to return. I mean, could be within seconds of this scene. So all of this is is leading to what we'll talk about next week. But let's just stop a moment and realize what John is seeing. And understand that when judgment finally comes upon the earth, all of heaven rejoices. So again, within the context of we love God's grace and mercy, it's okay to rejoice when God brings his judgment. I'm not talking about man's vengeance. I'm not talking about conflict for the sake of conflict. I'm talking about God bringing about his judgment. Every day, for the sake of our world and our nation, I pray that the wicked people in this world and in our nation, who are currently leading our nation, would either repent or be judged by God. I I pray this almost constantly. Paul said, I pray without ceasing. This is one of those things that every time I hear about a child being abused, or another murder, or the criminal justice system letting criminals out like a revolving door, or every time I hear about what could only be described as a demonic way of thinking that sterilizing children in the name of gender confusion is somehow okay, or every time their children are being indoctrinated in public schools to think differently about their sexuality or their gender, 
Or when I hear about those that, that want to be able to destroy life in the womb. Every time I hear about corruption at the executive level, the legislative level of our country, every time I see what's going on at the border, every time I hear about the problems in our cities, every single time my first reaction is, Lord, come quickly. There is no hope apart from Christ bringing judgment. But if you're going to equivocate and sit back and think that, number one, we can solve our own problems, good luck with that. Number two, if you're going to say, well, you know, I see their point. Listen, there's not going to be any time for that when Christ brings his judgment on the earth. You're either with him or you're not. And I'm not saying my way of thinking politically is the only way of thinking. But looking at God's word, there is right, there is wrong. There is truth, there is deception. And here at Calvary Chapel, we preach God's word, the truth. I try not to get too political, but you can't not look at our world and see where we're going in this book. You have to, without taking a moment and saying, where am I going to receive encouragement to deal with the difficulties of this desperately wicked world, if not looking at the world and coming to the conclusion that this is my only, our only hope. So when I talk about the issues of today, I'm not trying to persuade anyone or promote my particular brand of politics. I could care less about it. I don't trust any of them. What I do concern myself with are are the, the events that are taking place in our world. I look at the things that are happening around us, the culture, the corruption. I love our nation. I am an American. I'm a Christian first, but I'm also an American. Happy to be one. Very happy and and proud to be one, but my hope is in Christ and his judgment, but don't look at the things that are happening in our world and lose hope. There's always hope because there's always Christ. So we're seeing a rejoicing. Now, think about this for a minute. They're in heaven. We'll talk about who this is, but... The hosts of heaven are rejoicing, and it hasn't happened yet. That is, the completion of God's judgment hasn't happened yet. They're rejoicing. Can we rejoice now in what will ultimately come upon this earth? In anticipation of God's judgment, can we rejoice? Well, I hope you feel you can, because that's what we call praise when we say praise and worship. We rejoice in the promise of God's coming. We rejoice in the promise of him setting things right, in the promise of him bringing his judgment. So as I've said many times in our studies in Revelation, don't be walking around with your head down crying the sky is falling. Christ is coming again. And that truth should carry us through. And something else I'm learning, and this is actually quite revelatory to me, that when I carry myself with the hope that I have in Christ, that we all have, through faith in Christ, the people around me that have no hope see that. And they recognize how we feel and how we live and what we believe and the things that we find wicked and disgusting. And to see, when they look at you and they say, your life goes on, you're living your life. You don't look depressed. You're not hiding in a bunker somewhere. What is it that gets you to the place that I want to be? That is peace. That passes all understanding. A joy unspeakable, a faith in that which has yet to be revealed. It is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And if there's ever been a time when you have a platform to share Christ with those that don't know him, it's going to be coming from a place where you stand out in the midst of so many wicked evils in this world. 
This is a glorious opportunity time for us to share our faith. Oh, unless you're going to sit around and lament the political situations and focus on the things of this world, you can be involved in this world to some degree, but your hope can't be in it. But when people see our hope is in Christ, they look beyond us and this world to Christ, and they find peace and salvation. And that's what's being celebrated in heaven in chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This great multitude is rejoicing over God's judgment of Babylon the Great. Rejoicing. We rejoice in anticipation. They're rejoicing because it had just taken place. But we rejoice. And this crowd, this this roar of the crowd, and it's been a while since I've been to an arena or a stadium, but there's always that power of being in a place where there's just so many voices. The roar of the crowd. And this crowd included all the saints of God through the ages and all of his angelic creation. And I'll give you a little list, a little list of those who who we can expect to see in this crowd. First of all, there's those that were saints of God before the church. And there's the saints that died in the church before the rapture, of which we know many. Then there were the church saints that were raptured before the tribulation. We haven't seen the, the rapture yet, but, and we were not in the tribulation. But at this point, at the end of those seven years, there will be those Christians, those church saints, who didn't go through the tribulation, those who either died before it or were raptured out of it, and they'll be there too. That may be some of us. And then you have these tribulation saints, which we've spoken so much about, They died or were even martyred, most of them probably, before the return of Jesus. So in heaven, you have a long list of different people that love Christ throughout the ages. But you also have all of the heavenly host, the angelic creations. And what are they shouting? Hallelujah. Can you say hallelujah? Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. It means praise the Lord. I, I question... Christians that refuse to praise. I firmly believe we start our services with praise for a reason. Not because it's fun. Not because it's enjoyable, although it is. But because it sets your compass properly due north. You know, one of the things that I see this, it happens with the navigation systems, it happens with my printer all the time. It'll suddenly stop and make all kinds of clicks and noises and say, calibrating, calibrating. The printer does it. Your GPS will sometimes tell you, right? Calibrating. So, you know, the thing is, what is calibrating? What's a nerdy word I happen to like, but it means setting things right. I have a, a little measuring device that I use when I work on musical instruments. It's called a caliper. And it's very precise. But you have to start by calibrating it. Otherwise, everything's off. When you calibrate your life, that is, when you look at things properly, everything else can be measured perfectly. Praise is calibration. It's calibrating your heart and your mind to the truth about God. Oh, Pastor Tim, in this wicked world, with all the problems you even talked about already, how could you possibly praise God? Well, I don't know how you could not praise God. 
I'm praising God for what he's going to do, what he's done, and what he's doing. The work isn't complete. That much is obvious. If you were in the middle of a renovation of your home, uh, if you were to look at the home right after they gut it, you might be depressed. You wouldn't want to live in that home with the walls exposed and the wires hanging out. And Forget about decor. It looks like a bomb went off. I remember when I did my kitchen years ago. The first couple of days, it was kind of depressing. You said, wow, this is just a big old empty room, and it doesn't look very good. But over time, you, you finish that renovation, and when it's finished, you look at it, and you say, wow, this is great. You praise it. But you can praise what's going to be. And just like you start a renovation project knowing, well, these are the sketches. This is what it's going to look like. And you get excited about it. That's what we do when we study the book of Revelation. We look at the sketches. We look at what's going to happen, which includes God's judgment. And we say, this is where we're headed. Hallelujah. That's the focus of a study like this. Here you have all of heaven shouting hallelujah as they proclaim salvation, glory, and power to God. All of it comes from God, declaring God's judgments are true and just. Do you believe that God's judgments are true and just? Well, pastor, how come it hasn't happened yet? Because his judgments are true and just. Yeah, but it should have happened by now. No. If his judgments are true and just then the timing is also true and just. Oh, I want it to happen now. So do I, but I would rather have it in God's timing because God is true and just. I would probably judge the world way too soon if I were in control. But are we glad God is in control? These individuals, they declare God's condemnation of the Babylon system, Babylon the Great, called the Great Prostitute, This city, this system, as we saw over the last few weeks, was guilty of spiritual adultery with the world, and God will avenge Babylon for the blood that this system shed, the blood of God's faithful, martyred servants. And that's a good thing. We want that. We do. In his time, they shouted hallelujah as they proclaimed the eternal destruction of a world system that has been in existence since the Tower of Babel and has done nothing but destroy the lives of men, women, and children throughout the ages. Of course they rejoice. Now we're given a little bit more information. Look at verse 4 with me. You'll recognize some of these descriptions from previous studies. We're told in verse 4 that the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, if you were with us going back to chapter 4 and chapter 5 of this book, you'll remember the 24 elders and the four living creatures. These 24 elders that surrounded the throne of God represent all of the redeemed of mankind. And so they are representative of this heavenly scene. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was represented by 12 tribes, led by 12 patriarchs. So the number 12 in the scriptures is very much a number of administration, but 12 very much describes Israel in the 12 tribes. In the New Testament, when Christ set up the administration of his gospel outreach, his mission while he was on the earth that would continue after 
he ascended into heaven, he set up in the New Testament times a church that was represented by 12 apostles. Well, I know you're thinking, well, you know, Judas failed. Yeah, but Paul became an apostle. There were others. The apostles represented the New Testament church just the way the 12 patriarchs represented the Old Testament saints. So, 12 and 12, put them together, you got 24. The number 24 signifies, I believe, a description of all of the redeemed from the both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. And so we're seeing all of those that belong to Christ worshiping God in heaven throughout this entire revelation because we saw them worshiping way back in chapters 4 and 5 and they have worshiped all the way through this entire book. By the way, as of this moment, they are no longer referred to in this way. They will later be referred to as the bride of the lamb in verses 7 and 8. Same group of people. Same group of people. 24 elders represent all of the saints. The multitudes are the saints. And the bride, the bride of the lamb, is a description of the saints as they prepare to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. But it's the same group of people. I'm just glad that I'm among that group. Amen? Aren't we glad? Now, the four living creatures are not human beings. They are angelic creatures. They are found in the center around the throne of God. They're the closest of all created things around the throne of God. Again, introduced to us in chapter 4. Possibly the highest order of all creation. They're sometimes referred to as cherubim. Seraphim, or living creatures. Interestingly enough, the scriptures give us an indication that Satan was called the anointed cherub that covered, or covered the throne of God. So we oftentimes think of Satan as a fallen angel, and there's some truth to that, but he very well may have been one of these living creatures. There may have been five at one time. But now we see that there are four, and they're talked about a great deal. They're so close to God's throne that they actually reflect his eternal nature. Have you noticed that the closer you get to God, the more you reflect who he is? Say amen. Not in you. It's, it's not a light that comes from you. You know, the other night I was looking up at the sky and I saw the moon, of course. I also saw the, the planet Venus. Very bright this time of year. But these heavenly celestial things don't have light in and of themselves. In fact, the, the moon is very bright, but it's, that light comes from the sun. We don't see the sun. We're obscured from seeing that because of where we are on the earth. But the moon reflects the light of the sun. So you can't say the moon was very bright. Actually, it's the sun. But the reflection of that light comes to us in the form of maybe a full moon or a very bright moon on a clear night. Same is true for Venus and Jupiter, Mars, other planets that you can see. It's not a light that comes from them. It comes from the sun. The stars, of course, have their own light. But when we talk about the light of Christ in us, it's like we're that dead planet that has no light. But when the light of Christ shines on us, we light up the sky. Think of yourself as reflective of Christ's light and glory. Not that you have a light within yourself. Oh, there's only really darkness in our hearts apart from Christ. But that light can be so bright, the world can see it. And so that reflective light, that's Similar to the glory that comes from these four living creatures, they don't have any real holiness or glory in and of themselves, but they're so close to God around his throne that they can't but help to reflect 
the glory of God in this vision. These angelic creatures were seen around God's throne by Isaiah and Ezekiel, and they've been worshiping God in heaven and calling all of creation to worship him as well. Throughout our studies, we see them in the background doing this around the throne of God. They cried amen and hallelujah as they worship God in heaven. But I want to point out one thing. When you go back to Revelation 4 and 5, and you can read it this week if you're not familiar with it, only God is ever seated on the throne in heaven. Only God. When we see these visions, the thrones, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the angels, all of creation surrounds the throne, but only God is on the throne. In fact, it starts in chapter 4, verse 2, where we see the Father seated on the throne of God in heaven. But then, in chapter 5, verse 6, we see Jesus the Lamb, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> standing in the center of the throne of God in heaven. And finally, the Holy Spirit, described as a lampstand, really, in his sevenfold power, is at the center of the throne of God in heaven. So there you have the Trinity at the throne, <coughs> everyone else around the throne. So, there should be no question about who God is. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and worthy to be worshipped by all creation. Now, one of the other things we see here in verse 5 is there's a voice that comes from the throne of God. And this voice could be very close to the throne or actually from the throne, but this is what it says. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Now we're back to this theme of praise, and really that's the theme of, of today's message. It's, it's hallelujah. It's praise God. And, and more than anything else, we, we need to leave here today with the understanding that that is the key to surviving these dark times. If you're not praising, you will, like a plant without sun and rain, shrivel up and die. And when people look at your life and they find out you're a Christian and they see the bitterness and the anxiety and the turmoil and the fact that there's maybe hate in your heart and all kinds of wickedness welling up in you and disgust with the world and you're just so depressed, what do you expect? You think people are going to ask you, where do you go to church? I'd like to attend. Do you think that that's what's going to happen? We should be the most praising, positive people on the planet. We should be so ridiculously positive that people say, what is wrong with that person? How can they possibly be so praising, so positive? How is it possible? The only way that's going to happen is if it's sincere. And the only way you're going to be that way is if you praise God. So that's why we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays, not just to receive from the Word, to be encouraged, but to praise God. And if you come here at 9 o'clock, as I like to say, not 9.10, not 9.15, if you come here at 9 o'clock, by 9 o'clock, you're going to find something out. We praise here at Calvary Chapel. We praise. I'm in the back. i got things on my mind, okay? i got a busy day today. And I'm running around making sure this is taken care of and that's taken care of. And everything's taken care of. But every once in a while, things go poof, And I'm running around trying to fix things, but not today. And I'm standing in the back and I'm listening. And the music begins. And it's not really the music, although that's a part of it. And the musicians begin to play. And they're very accomplished and they're very helpful in presenting the music. 
But then the words come up on the screen and I start to read them. And then I start to open my mouth and I praise and then something amazing happens. I'm transformed through praise. Transformed. I don't have a care in the world when I'm praising God. You know, it's impossible to complain and praise at the same time. It's impossible to worry and be anxious and sing praises to God at the same time. Oh, you can take all those little pills. They might help, maybe. But I can tell you this. If you're dealing with anxiety, if you're dealing with pressure, if you're dealing with the difficulties that come with raising a family in this dark world, and you're not praising, can I ask, why not? This whole heavenly scene is all about praise. And so the voice from the throne of God in heaven commands all of his servants, who fear him to praise him? So dare I say that if you don't praise God, you're in disobedience? Is it, is it, is it okay to say that? If you're not praising God, are you obeying God when God's voice says, praise God? I, I think... You know, in this, we've kind of stumbled on the truth that's so profound and yet so simple. We don't praise God enough. We don't praise God enough. What does it mean to praise God? Just say anything that's true about him. Where you find the truth of God in his word. Many of our songs and the things we sing are actually from the scripture. Either the concept is from the scripture or the words themselves are from the scripture. So when we sing that scripture, it's not a magic incantation. This isn't hocus pocus. It's the truth of God being spoken out of your life. And then it begins to transform you because it's true. Because it's true. We're missing a great opportunity. If you attend a church service where it's like entertainment... Where And listen, anybody that knows me knows I love music. And I don't even listen to Christian music. I love music. But when I'm praising, it's not about the music. Yes, music is a part of it. But we need to be praising God. If you go to a place where it's a theater and it's really all about the experience, that might be fun. It might not even necessarily be a bad thing, but it isn't praise. There's, there's nothing... There's nothing that looks like that, that looks like entertainment, that that can really be described as praise. All of those trappings, all of that stuff that's designed to get people's attention, that's not praise. And we use the word worship. What's worship? It's very simple. Worship is surrender to God. But don't even go about trying to surrender your heart to God until you've praised. And that's just telling the truth. Telling the truth about who God is. So a great multitude in heaven rejoiced because something is about to happen. Christ's return to rule and reign on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the fulfillment of that prayer. The very way that Christ has called us to pray, it's the very fulfillment of that prayer. And it's about to happen. By the way, it's about to happen. They're seeing from heaven that it's about to happen on earth. We're on earth seeing it's about to happen on earth, but it's about to happen. I might live to see it. I might not, but it will happen. And when it happens, praise is the only acceptable and appropriate response. Look what we read in verses 6 through 8. John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude. 
like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. That's how loud it was. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Can you say glad? Be glad. I don't see enough of this in church. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice means be filled with joy. Be glad means be happy. Rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. By the way, interpretation right here for us. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So there need not be any confusion about what that represents. A great multitude, sounding like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, they shouted hallelujah as they proclaimed that the Lord God Almighty reigns. When's the last time you said that out loud? The Lord God Almighty reigns. You might say, God is in control. It's the same thing. I say it a lot. I need to remind myself God is in control. I read the newspaper. God is in control. I don't watch the news anymore. I think I've told you that. I had to stop. Maybe they have a recovery group that I can join. I don't mean to make light of recovery, but I think I might need one. Every once in a while, I have the temptation to turn it on. I think, what happened the last time you did this? Do you remember? And I think, I was depressed. Yeah. I stay up on current events, but I read. And when I see in, in the paper online that they're starting to try to spin something, I just, eh. Or it's an article about cats. Like, can somebody please tell me why I'm reading a newspaper and I'm learning about some cat or some dog? Like, really, what is, what? The United States is, is I mean, we're, we're really losing it, right? So sometimes I'll watch foreign news because they actually report on what's going on in the world. When I, when I look at those things and I just avoid them, I say, you know, I don't need that in my life. I don't need that. My life is so much better since I started doing that. I really, really do believe it has transformed my life. I do other things as well to stay positive, but that in and of itself has been transformational. Just not letting all that negativity and garbage into my mind and into my heart. I'm going to confess, during the last administration, I watched the news And it was great because I liked what was happening. But I watched the news like I don't even know how many hours a day. Sometimes I would just leave it on and just listen to it. Because I liked what was happening. It was exciting. And then all of a sudden I didn't like what was happening. And it wasn't so exciting. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I did that with the NFL. I did that with the MLB. I I did that with a lot of things in my life. And I'm so much better off. So sometimes we have to recognize that God is in control. And if you're doing things that cultivate a feeling or a way of thinking where you come to the conclusion that God is not in control, stop doing those things and start praising God. No reason for us to be the church of depression. These heavenly crowds declare that they should rejoice and be glad and give God the glory. They declared the reason for that was that the wedding of the Lamb had come and his bride had made herself ready. It was about to happen. What's about to happen? The redeemed in mankind, the redeemed of mankind in heaven, they recognize that they have now become the bride of the Lamb. 
Now, when you get married, you know, you get engaged, you start to plan those things, and then at a certain point, it starts to happen. Like you're a week away from the event, you start to think, and women start to think, I'm a bride. They've been planning on being one, but now they are one. The dress and all the arrangements and the celebration, and then that day comes where the bride actually gets dressed and comes down the aisle. But the truth is that day was on the way all along, but now this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day when that woman becomes a bride, when that man becomes a groom. This is the day that it all happens. That's what we're talking about here. This is the day when God's people will rule and reign with him forever. The bride had made herself ready. Now remember, Jesus spoke of himself as a bridegroom. And he spoke of us, his church, as his bride. So that's not a new concept. Paul even spoke of the marriage relationship between Christ and his church. Now, what would you think of a bride or a bridegroom that a couple weeks out from their wedding were depressed and discouraged and bummed out and saying things like, oh, I don't know. What's going to happen? You wouldn't think very much. You might not even want to go to that wedding. You might think maybe there shouldn't be a wedding. You and I haven't just been invited to a wedding. We are the bride. We are going to be joined with Christ for all eternity. And if you can't get excited about that, I don't know what you're doing here. That is exciting news. When, Pastor Tim? When? You know, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Because you talk to someone who's getting married, who's excited about getting married six months out, they're excited about getting married. Three months out, they're excited about getting married. Day before, they're excited about getting married. When doesn't matter. It's what's about to happen that matters. And you are the bride of Christ. So no more negative talk. No more being bummed out. No more giving up hope. Hallelujah. Now this multitude declared that his bride, Christ's bride, had been given fine linen, bright and clean to wear. It might surprise you to know that the idea of a wedding dress is a relatively new concept. I believe, while certainly people dressed appropriately at their weddings, the white wedding dress came out of the Victorian age. I think it was a relatively new concept. But notice that the concept of fine linen, bright and clean to wear, goes back to the first century in this revelation, at least as it relates to the bride of Christ. And we're told fine linen represents Christ's righteousness, which is given or imputed to us. A bride puts on a dress. The dress is not the bride, but she puts it on. And that's the way we put on the righteousness of Christ. Fine linen represents, as it says here, the righteous acts of the saints of God. But it's not our righteousness. Isaiah told us all about our righteousness. It is as filthy rags. Ain't nobody wearing filthy rags to a wedding. Christ's righteousness. Even though every good and perfect gift is from above, even the most righteous of the saintly acts are not ours, but Christ working through us. So before you think you're all that, 
Understand that God is the one that has made you presentable. When people look at your life and they say, wow, you got it all together, you can say, yeah, only for one reason. See this fine linen I'm wearing? It's Christ's righteousness. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Appropriately dressed. Are you appropriately dressed this morning? What I mean by that is, are you wearing the righteousness of Christ? Not your own righteousness. Nothing uglier than that, right? Who likes to meet someone and the first thing out of their mouth are, aren't I great? Look at me. I mean, you meet people like that. I just want to, be, I want to vomit. It's, it's. A saint understands that their righteousness is not their own. And another reason to praise God. Finally, verses 9 and 10. John says, then the angel said to me, and I'll remind you the angel, I mean, Jesus had sent his angel to his servant John to make the revelation of Jesus Christ known to us. That is Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Going way back to the beginning of our studies. But notice, the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I've mentioned this before, blessed. I like that word. Because literally it means how happy are. Oh, how happy are. Don't tell me you can't be happy. Oh, can't be happy in this world. Can't be happy. No, you can be filled with not only happiness, gladness, rejoicing, joy. Happiness. Oh, it doesn't come every day. Some days are happier than others. But happiness or blessedness in our lives because we're know, we're, we know we're invited to this wedding supper of the Lamb. And not just to be guests. We're in the wedding. We are the bride. The angel told John to record God's blessing on those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now those invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb include all the saints of God. Are you a saint of God? Say amen. amen. Then you're invited. Did you get your invitation? There it is. Cut and paste. If you're looking online, you've got your phone. Cut and paste. There's your invitation. Highlight it in your Bible. Oh, I wasn't invited. Don't you love when people say things like that? Oh, I heard you had a party. I wasn't invited. You heard I had a party? Yeah, but I wasn't invited. You are invited. If you don't show up, whose fault is that? You are invited to be the bride of Christ. Oh, I never felt like I really fit in, Pastor. You're invited. Don't forget that. Respond to that invitation today, if you haven't already. The wedding supper of the Lamb is the very moment when Christ returns to rule and reign on the earth. Do you want to be there? Say amen. You're invited. Whether you're a saint from the Old Testament, a saint that died in the past and during the church age, or a saint that was or will be raptured, or a saint that will die during these seven years, being martyred for their faith in Christ, you're all invited. This angel assured John that these words of blessing are the true words of God. Sometimes we see in our King James, verily, verily, I say to you. That is a way of we're seeing in Christ's own words. 
He's telling us in a repeated way, it's true, you can trust me. And the same is true here, the true words of God. And finally, John responds in this way, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. Now you'd think by now that John would know you don't worship angels, right? But he's overwhelmed by all that he has seen. But notice the angel said to me, John writes, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have a tendency sometimes to submit ourselves to, that's what worship means, to submit ourselves to the person that's bringing the message. But that is incorrect. We only submit ourselves to God. And this is why so much of the church in our world today is corrupt. Because you have leaders like the messenger here, that when people bow down to them, unlike this angel, don't correct and say, worship God. And that's a problem. But it's not a problem here. John makes the mistake in thinking he needs to submit to this angel, but he's wrong, and so he gets corrected because the angel of God here refuses to be worshipped by mankind. So never worship an angel, never worship anyone but God. He described himself as a fellow servant with John, and by the way, that's the way church leaders can only be described. All those who hold to the testimony of Jesus understand this. We are fellow servants so this angel commanded John to worship God and God alone. So now we get to the second part of our theme today, not just praise, but worship. We've talked about praise. What's worship? It's submitting to God. So hallelujah is to praise God. Bowing down and submitting your life to God is to worship God, but only God and only God alone. That's it. And then he says something that is so profound. I really want us to take this home, wrap it up, take it home, and think about it all week. He said this. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That, that's going to take a moment of thinking. But think it through with me. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What's the testimony of Jesus? The testimony of Jesus is the Gospels, the Word of God, who he is, the Gospel message. It's the testimony of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. See, the purpose of all prophecy is to testify to Jesus and bring him worship. It's not to predict future events. All prophecy testifies that Jesus is the Son of God, one with the Father and the Spirit. All prophecy testifies to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for all mankind. So I hear a lot of guys say, hey, I'm really into prophecy. Yeah, I am too. Prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus, as I ask the worship team to come up to close the service? Well, we've talked about praising God. We've talked about worshiping or submitting our hearts to God. Telling the truth about God is praise. Submitting your hearts and your lives to God is worship. Praise and worship. But the testimony of Jesus... Well, the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy, that is, all of prophecy tells us that the testimony of Jesus is real and true. But what is it? Well, we've talked about it a lot already, but I want to spell it out for you. Christ came and died on a cross for our sins. See, we were sinners, we know this truth, separated from God because of our sin nature. Even if you were able to never sin, let's say you had a condition that didn't allow you to sin, you'd still be a sinner because you have a sin nature. 
So because we're sinners, we're separated from God, so Christ becomes a man, the God-man, doesn't sin, dies on a cross, takes upon himself the very punishment that we deserve, dies in our place, gives up his own life. No one took it from him. Dies, three days later, is raised from the dead. Amen? To show us that he conquered death, but also that he paid the price for sin. And then he ascends into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf, that is to pray for us, what? That we will respond to him. Praying that we will respond to him and to the Holy Spirit, which he sent into the earth to bring us to him. The purpose of the testimony of Jesus is your salvation. Jesus' name means God is salvation. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. The purpose of all prophecy, indeed the entire book, the word of God, is to communicate to you the truth of Jesus so that you will be saved. So if you walk out of here denying that Christ died on the cross for your sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, there is no hope in heaven for you. You only will experience the judgment of God. And the rest of us are going to celebrate that judgment after we mourn that you didn't respond to the grace of God. So you have a choice. Because the last part of that gospel message, the last part of that testimony of Jesus is that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. What does that mean? Well, that means that if you are alive in Christ, you won't be judged for your sins. You will rule and reign as the bride of Christ for all eternity. But if you reject Christ, you're dead. And you're, de- you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And what you will experience for all eternity is the judgment of God. While the rest of us experience in eternity the grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and glory of God. So, it's your choice. But understand something. The word of God, the testimony of Jesus, all prophecy has brought you to this place and to this time where you can make that decision. I can't make it for you. Parents, you can't make it for your children. Each and every one of us need to make it for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we know you've made it clear we have a choice to make. May we choose you. And for those of us who have chosen you, may we reflect you and your glory and your love and your mercy rather than bringing more darkness and negativity into this world. May we reflect the truth of your word to those around us, offering them the hope of Christ. May we praise you constantly. May we worship you always. And may we reach this desperate, dark world with the truth of the testimony of Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.